You're listening to City Church. Well, hey, first off, happy Thanksgiving. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Come on, good, good. A little dazed uh, still from Thanksgiving break a little bit. Uh, we had a great time. My wife had to work, so we had to adjust our, our schedule a little bit, but uh, had a good Thanksgiving nonetheless. And um, Justin and I were, were looking at the calendar this week, and we realized that he preached 19 weeks in a row from July up until last Sunday. Somebody say that's too many. Right, it's too many. And uh, so we're grateful for him. He is enjoying a well-deserved break from preaching this week. He's actually leading worship this week, but uh, taking a week off in order to get ahead on some prep. Uh, December is going to be an awesome month. And uh, he's been sharing some of the things as we talk about our story. And uh, we could not be more excited about the month of December. And so I have the honor of standing before you this morning. Luke, our campus pastor, and Meredith is preaching. And then Nancy Silva, uh, wife of Joe Silva, one of our elders, is preaching down in Bridgeport. And so a great morning. Really, really excited. So let me pray, and we'll begin our time together, all right? So God, again, we just, we humble ourselves before you, and we say that we love you, and we're grateful for you. We ask that you would speak to us, that you would, you would custom fit this message for each of us. We believe that you are speaking and will continue to speak to every single one of us. And so right now, would you just begin to open our hearts? Would you just begin to open our ears so that we can hear you? We long for the static just to be quieted. We ask that we would hear from you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how many of you guys have ever been lost? Lost. I'm, I'm not talking about like, like I took a wrong turn on the way to a party type of lost. I'm talking about the type of lost where if you don't figure out where you are really quick, your life is going to be in danger. That type of lost. Anybody else? Yeah, a lot of you guys actually. You know, that has happened to me twice in my life where I've been in legit trouble, which doesn't bode well for the next time because three strikes and you're out, right? But my first time was I was 16 years old, and I remember it so vividly. A group of about 20 of us uh, went down to Mexico. And a group from my school went down to do a relief trip where we were working at an orphanage. And so we were doing some orphan care, and we were doing some construction. And so flew down to Mexico City, and... Uh, uh, about six hours in a bus outside of Mexico City. And so we are really legitimately in the boonies. We are far away. It's just hills. There's dirt roads everywhere. This is not, you know, mainstream civilization. This is out in the sticks, okay? And so we are in this mission trip. It's probably a 10-day trip. And you know how it goes. Eight or so of the days you do work. And then typically you take one or two days just to enjoy, you know, some sightseeing and, and take a little break. And so we take a break. And what we decide to do is there's this great mountain that we've been looking at all week long. At the top is the statue of Jesus. And so we decide we're going to do a team hike up to the top of this, all right? And so it takes probably three or four hours to get up. It's a pretty long hike. And so the team gets up to the top. And as you can imagine, there's just these, these picturesque views. And so we're snapping pictures, you know, with the old, you know, hit it and then, and then it hits it, right? This is before cell phone cameras. And uh, so we're taking pictures and uh, we're sitting my buddy and I, I remember it so vividly, and we're looking out, and it's just about time to head back down the trail. And we see over at the start of the trail, this little short, scrawny freshman, and he tears off down the trail, and he's headed for the bottom. And so we look at each other, we're both hyper-competitive, and we just say, there's no way he's beating us at the bottom, right? And he agreed. And so we pop off this rock wall, and we start full-on sprinting down this trail. And so we're running, 
and we're running, and we're flying down this trail, and we're running, and we're running. And I, I catch the back of my heel really, really smoothly, and I go flying spread eagle down the trail. And I'm, you know, land on your elbows, and you grind for about 10 feet to the extent where my forearms and my knees and my stomach were bleeding really, really bad. It was a pretty nasty fall. And so at this point, we kind of, you know, I pop my head up and I figure out if I'm okay. And this is the first time we've actually now stopped to look around. And so we are, you know, assessing the situation and we kind of look at each other and say, this doesn't really look all that familiar. And he's like, I have no idea where we are. And so we kind of look around and it's like, nope, we are definitely off trail. And so you're supposed to head back the way you came if you want to find the trail. It's the general rule when you're lost. We decided that we would figure it out, so we plowed forward like smart 16-year-olds would often be tend to do. And so we head to the bottom, and we come out into, for lack of a better term, like a Native American tribe, Okay. I mean, there's literally, there's, there's teepees everywhere. There's a fire in the middle with like a pot on it that's, you know, cooking stuff. And, and so we walk into the middle of this, and though a fire's brewing, there's no one around. And it is ultra creepy. I feel like I'm walking through a scene of like The Walking Dead or something where, you know, I'm walking through and I'm just waiting for something to like, ah, like pop out at me, you know? And so we're walking through, and suddenly um, these two women emerge from one of the teepees. And they walk over, and they see, you know, my wounds, and I'm bleeding pretty bad at this point. And they're gesturing that, you know, they want to help me get clean. But my whole time in Mexico, I've been hearing about this thing called Montezuma's Revenge. And uh, what I'm told is that if you get any water in your system, you spend a good three days or so on the toilet. It's not good. Right? And so I, I'm hearing about Montezuma's Revenge, and I don't want to spend three days on the toilet. I'd rather have my wounds. And so I'm like, yeah, thank you, no thank you. But I don't speak any Spanish, okay? I know two words. I know el baño, okay? That's all I know in Spanish, the bathroom, okay? That's all I know how to say. And so our communication, as you can imagine, isn't going very far. And so we decide we're going to start drawing on the ground. So we get a stick, and I'm trying to figure out how to get back to a road. And so I'm, I'm drawing in the dirt. And I'm drawing a bus, and it's not working, okay? So they're just looking at me, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, dude, this is like Picasso, you know? And I'm like, How could you not understand what I'm talking about? And they have no idea. So eventually we just sort of, like, okay, you don't know what I'm talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. So we just, you know, do that, and then walk through the village and say, we're going to have to figure this out on our own. So we walk through, and at this point, we have literally no idea where we are. Like I said, we're about six hours outside the city. There are not highways. There are not main roads. Uh, there's nothing that's telling us how to get back to this small town where our hotel is. And so we decide uh, we're just going to start walking until we find a road. So we walk for a while. Eventually, we, we bump into a road. And it's like, oh, praise God, we found a road. And then it's like, okay, so do we go that way or do we go that way? No idea either, so we pick and we decide to go right. And so we walk for a good while, just praying that a bus will come. Just praying that something that will come that will literally bring us back to a place of safety. And after walking for quite a while, by the grace of God, this big diesel passenger bus comes rumbling down the road. And so we're like, we're flagging it down, you know what I mean? We're doing everything we can to get the bus stop. It grinds to a halt. And then I step onto the bus and I'm like, Albano, you know, I'm like, I, got, I still have nothing to say, you know, but I remember that in my wallet, I have the business card from the hotel, and so I give this to him, and I'm like, you know, and so 
he kind of starts shouting back to some of the other passengers in, in Spanish, and I, I don't still know what they're saying, obviously. And then he goes, uh-huh. and he gives me a grunt and tells me to get in. So we're like, you want to? And I'm like, well, you know. So we get in the bus. And probably about an hour later, he brings us into town and drops us off. And, you know, we look back and we say, literally, that bus probably rescued us. It probably rescued us from what could have been a really bad situation. If something or someone else had picked us up, obviously there's wild animals down there. Uh, there are folks who don't have the best intentions for you. And so if the bus hadn't saved us, hadn't rescued us, our lives literally could have been in great danger. And I wonder this morning if you know what it's like to need a rescue. Maybe yours is not the geographic kind or the physical kind. Maybe yours is more of the emotional sort. You need an emotional rescue. Maybe for you, uh, you feel like your marriage has been on life support for the last year or two, and you've just been crying out saying, God, I need a rescue. God, I need you to intervene. Maybe you've needed a job. And so you've been praying, just seeking God, saying, God, I need you to provide this job for me. Maybe yours is of the sort where you've been having a crisis of faith and you've been saying, God, I need you to rescue my faith. God, I need you to come through right now or I could actually be in trouble. You know, remember we had a season, my wife and I did a few years ago, where it felt like everything began to cave in at once. Probably about four years ago to about two years ago, somewhere in that time frame, that chunk of life, it felt like everything was unraveling at the seams at once. It started with uh, this crazy situation and this really greedy guy trying to take our home from us and force us into foreclosure. And that's a long story with a, a series of wacky circumstances, but literally that was being taken from us. At the same time, my wife had just started grad school and was putting in, you know, 100-hour weeks at school, and that was really, really draining on the both of us, and we're beginning to feel the grind of that, you know? At the same time, she loses both of her grandparents. Right in that season, three couples that we know and love have to get divorced because of really, really just ugly things. And there's a number of other things, and we just felt like our shoulders are just starting to get heavy. And then my wife gets pregnant, the highest of joys, and suffers a miscarriage. And it was like, for me, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And it was like, God, if you don't come through right now, God, I might not make it. I'm like, God, I need a rescue right now. This might be it for me. I don't know if I can take anymore. And if you don't intervene right here, right now, and literally rescue my faith, I'm afraid of what might happen. Do you need a rescue this morning? If you don't right now, there's a good chance inevitably you will. Live long enough and and your own journey will take you through a difficult season in which you'll find yourself knocking on the gates of heaven saying, God, I need you to intervene right now. I need you to intervene. In Mark chapter 10, where we're going to be this morning, uh, Jesus gives us what I'm going to call the roadmap for a rescue. Jesus gives us a four pieces of a map that when you put them together, what they form is the road map through which he would have us travel in these moments when we need a rescue. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10 with me. Uh, We are going to start in verse 46. The words will be on the screen if you want to read along there instead of in your own Bibles. 
And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what would you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now, this is quite near the end of the book of Mark. I want to give you a little bit of context of what was happening at this stage in Jesus' life. Jesus, for the last three years, has been ministering to the folks around him. Uh, His time on earth is nearing its completion. For years, he has been healing the sick. He has been raising the dead. He has been uh, opening deaf ears. He's been giving sight to blind eyes. He's been exalting the Father and in many different ways been saying, I am the gateway through which all must enter if they want to have their relationship with the Father restored. His time on the earth is is just about done. If his life was to be represented by a candle, the wick is basically just all the way burned down. And in just a short time, his life will be complete. The New New Testament record of Jesus' miracles begin with a wedding in the town of Cana. And he turns water into wine. And this miracle here is is the last public miracle of his time on earth. His last chance to show his supernatural power. Until the cross. And until the beauty of the resurrection. But as far as people and public miracles go before the cross, this is his last one. And so this miracle puts the period at the end of an astonishing sentence of his miracles. He has been filling Israel with supernatural power on display, banishing disease, banishing demons, calling forth life into dead bodies, demonstrating in so many different ways that he had complete and utter authority over the physical world and the spiritual world. And there is one more monumental miracle that will follow the cross, that of the resurrection. But that's not today. This is the time for Jesus where he will become the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Where the sovereign Lord will now become the sacrificial lamb. Where the anointed one will become the rejected one. Earlier in the chapter, he had taken his disciples aside and he had said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So he pulls his disciples aside. He says, Okay, men, it's time for us to head to Jerusalem. And you know what awaits me there. I will be killed. And so Jesus is not unaware of that. He knew every detail of what was to come. As we read the other Gospels of Matthew 
and Luke and John, Jesus knows in intricate detail what awaits him at Jerusalem. As he's leaving this town of Jericho, headed on the road to Jerusalem, he knows exactly what is coming when he arrives. He knows he will be mocked, he will be spit on, he will be reviled, he will be tortured, and he knows that he will be hung on the cross. Nothing was surprising to Jesus. And so rejection has been set. At this stage in Jesus' life and mind, death is now inescapable. The shallow crowd that is with him right now, supporting him, will in just a few short days' time be calling out, crucify him. Crucify him. As you imagine, this is not a a joyful time for Jesus. You can imagine all that's going on in his mind. The people who were following him that day were not aware that more than the destiny of a nation hung in the balance right now. The destiny of the world hung in the balance, and yet, even in the midst of, of this cosmic reshaping of the universe that's about to transpire, Jesus stops and he heals a blind man. You would think if you were Jesus, with all that you knew was coming, the pain and all the difficulty that was about to come, you would think that he would just have his head down and he would be plowing towards Jerusalem. And yet, we see him stop and give sight back to a blind man. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus stop and do that, I wonder? We talk about, uh, in Christian circles, we talk about the one being sacrificed for the many. We talk of Jesus and his arms being open to the many, and rightly so. But the other thing to catch, I think Jesus puts on display for us here, is that in the kingdom of God, even the one is sought out to be blessed. And Jesus shows that to us here in the story of Bartimaeus. Now picture me this, this man, Bartimaeus. You've in all likelihood been blind your whole life. He's poor. He's no one to take care of him. We know that because he's on the side of the road begging. And yet, when we meet him here in Mark chapter 10, he's a man of faith. I wonder how, how, why, why is he a man of faith? How did he come to ascertain faith in Jesus? And truth be told, we're not exactly sure. But we know with almost certainty what it's not. We know he's not one of those people who witnessed Jesus doing miracles and came to faith in Christ by watching Jesus perform the miraculous. We know he's probably not one of those folks who followed Jesus around and heard him preach and that as Jesus preached, things just awoke in his heart and faith was stirred. We know that's probably not him. He probably didn't have someone to care for him and lead him around. Otherwise, he would be in a different position than where we find him in Mark chapter 10. I mean, just imagine, imagine this man's existence. Never having seen a sunrise, never having seen the smile of a loved one. When they look at you and their eyes light up. His existence was one that was to be pitied. He had to beg for his living. No one was providing for him, and so he stuck outside the walls of Jericho begging. And so just imagine with me for a second. I I want you to just put yourself in his shoes. Imagine that you are Bartimaeus, okay? You're blind and you're helpless. You're forced to rely on the help and charity of others. One author tells us that one of the joys that you would experience, though, is that you'd be able to bask in the sunlight. And this author wrote that one of the things that the men in those days used to do is they would sit on the banks outside of Jericho. And they would just sit in the sunlight. And the warmth of the sunlight just became a great joy to men without sight. 
You can imagine you're sitting there. What do you do? Well, you tell stories, right? You tell stories with those around you. And maybe one day, as you're listening, somebody's walking by on the road, and you begin to hear them tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, you're not going to believe it. This man literally is healing people with leprosy. And you just, you, your, your ear turns because you say, this man, I mean, like, actually healed them? And you just begin to, like, the door just cracks open. And you just say, I wonder if, and like another day goes by and you hear about Jesus. And he has given, he's been hearing back to the deaf man. And you say, is that possible? Is that true? Maybe. Maybe, you know, undoubtedly you would have heard of what happened um, not too far away in the town of Bethany. They tell the story of Jesus literally calling this man Lazarus back to life. What an incredible story. They say he was dead for four days. In the grave, in the tomb, four days, completely dead. And Jesus walks up to this man's tomb and he calls him out. And the man walks back full of life. The day comes when you hear the passers-by talking about Jesus. And they talk about the blind man who Jesus had healed. And in that moment, your soul leaps because you say, Yes! He can heal the blind man! Yes! And faith just begins to awaken your heart and you say, My day will come! My day will come! And as you begin to stir that over and over in your spirit, you never get tired of hearing that story told. And so you sit there on the bank and you just say, hey, tell me the story again about Jesus of Nazareth. Tell me about how he he healed that man who was born blind. And like a cool, refreshing breeze, that story just washes over your soul. And it begins to take root and take hold. Maybe one of these days you recall how when you were growing up you heard about the Messiah who would one day give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf. And in your spirit you say, if this Jesus is doing all of those things, then surely he must be the Messiah. And so as you sit there, others will choose to mock him, but not you. How could you mock the one who is giving back sight to the blind? As you sit there, you hear others call him an imposter. And you just say, how could he be an imposter if he's giving hearing back to those who are deaf? How could he be an imposter? And a confidence just begins to to lodge deep into your soul. And you become a disciple of Jesus. Because you say, he is the Messiah. But you can't join in. And a day comes, the day you've dreamed of, and Jesus says to you, your faith has made you well. Because you chose to believe, you stand in front of Jesus and he says, your faith has made you well. And so as we look at the story here of Bartimaeus, what I want to show you is that there are four observations that when come together, they make this roadmap for a rescue. They're the ingredients of an intervention, if you will. And so Bartimaeus shows us the first one here. The first piece is this. You need to risk your heart and choose faith. If you want to set yourself up 
for God moving in power in your life, when you call on him, the first piece, the first step is that you would risk your heart and choose faith. I want you to notice here what makes him well. Jesus says, it's your faith that has made you well. And so if you want to position yourself for a divine intervention, your first step is one of risk. Risk? I mean, why do I say risk? Because you need to choose to activate faith in your heart that God can and will move. And so the truth is, all of us in this room, a couple hundred people, each of us has a story where we would say, boy, I really... I came to God about this thing, and things didn't turn out how I wanted them to. Things didn't turn out how I had longed for them to turn out. And so the disappointments and the frustrations of life, as they carry on long enough, it's like they begin to build up scar tissue over our hearts. And so when it's time again to come to God for something, there's something inside us that just goes, I'm just not sure I can do that again. I'm just not sure I can can risk that. Can I really open myself up to that again? Because what if... What if God doesn't move? Can I really bear risking that again? And so instead we we wrestle with God, can I really, really choose faith? So we wrestle with whether or not we want to take that risk. And we decide we don't want to contend for this thing again. It's just too painful because what if God doesn't move on our behalf? It's just simply too painful and so rather than going through and contending, we just, we just step back. We say, I, I cannot fully engage. You know, maybe you know what this is like. You've stood on the edge of, of cynicism with just a defeated weariness. Questioning whether or not you can, you can actually fully engage again. You know, in our society, uh, cynicism has become just so prevalent. You know, it's almost, it's almost cool these days to um, see through the veil all the time and to always see what people's real motives are. And it's become uh, just so common. Rather than to, to pouring ourselves into our work, we pull back a little bit because we say, ah, eventually it's not going to work out. Or we don't pour ourselves into a relationship or a friendship because we say, eventually they're going to leave. And so this, this spirit of cynicism has just begun to take root. And I think it's one of the reasons Jesus talks so often about a childlike faith. The childlike faith that keeps coming to his father saying, I believe that you have good for me. I believe that you have my best interest in mind. And so I will continue coming. And so cynicism, if we're not careful, it affects our ability to pray. Because we just say, can I really trust you to move again, God? And then if we're honest, we begin to say, oh, you know, God answered my prayer, but maybe he would have just done it anyways. And so rather than believing and choosing faith, we decide to hold a piece of ourselves back because it's just too painful when God doesn't meet us in the way that we expect him to. The problem with that is this. Audacious faith is one of the hallmarks of followers of Christ. We see it all throughout the scriptures. I mean, God shows up and tells Noah to build a boat in the middle of the desert. I mean, how ridiculous is that? But Noah says, I will step forward with faith because you have said so, God. Jesus calls Peter out onto liquid and says, step on that. And Peter says, all right, Jesus, I will choose faith. And he steps into that. Because audacious faith is one of the hallmarks of Jesus' followers. 
So if today you consider yourself a follower of Christ, we choose not to be skeptical, not to be cynical, instead to do what Bartimaeus says, and we risk, we risk that when we come to Jesus' feet, things might not actually show up in exactly how they should in our minds. And we choose to risk. God tells us in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good for those who love and fear him. And so we stand on this, this precipice and we say, I can go this way and I can choose not to contend or I can, I can step into faith again. As we position ourselves to see God show up in incredible ways in our life and in our heart, we choose faith. We choose to activate faith in our hearts that God will move again. And so we pick the story back up. It says there's a great crowd And we hear Bartimaeus yell out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's no shame here. This man is brazen. He is brash. He will be heard. And Jesus hears him in response. He says he he comes to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now listen, if you've been blind your whole life, that is a bold prayer. That is not, Jesus, would you bless me? Oh, Jesus, would you, would you give me something to eat? This is a man who's never known sight, who says, Jesus, I want you to give me sight. And in doing so, he gives us the second piece of the map, and it's this. Ask boldly. Ask boldly. I remember a few years back, I told you my wife is in grad school, and I remember when um, uh, we were first married, and I was an engineer at that time, and she was a dental hygienist. And uh, I was really feeling God just pull into working in the local church and, and really just loving that and, and longing for that. And she was feeling really called not to any longer be a dental hygienist. And so she began, uh, you know, seeing what some of the other options are. And so she decides that she wants to pursue being a physician assistant. The thing is, in that field, it's incredibly hard to get into those programs. And so where she ended up going, Quinnipiac, it's something like 1,500 applicants for 30 spots. But she began to ask boldly. She said, God, I believe that you've planted this thing in my heart, and so I will choose to seek you regularly and say, God, would you give me one of those 30 spots? Not because she had earned it, not because she thought she deserved it, not because any of that. Truth be told, you had applicants with 4.0s and 100 of those people. And my wife, though she's smart, didn't have a 4.0. And so on paper, it's not like she was some guarantee. She just said, God, I'm going to choose to ask boldly for what I feel like you've put in my heart. And I remember the day she called. I was out in Chicago at a conference. And she said, you're not going to believe it. I actually got in. And I was like, what? And then she's like, and I start in four weeks. I'm like, what? You know, it's like massive life change in about a month's time. But I remember her just asking boldly. And she had chosen to risk believing that God would open that door. And he honored it as she asked boldly. Daring to ask big, specific prayers of God is closely tied to our willingness to risk. We combine huge asks of God with God-given humility. We are positioning ourselves for a move of God. You see this all throughout the scriptures. Uh, Some of you may remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18. 
And what's going on at that time is the people of Israel have walked away from God and they are pursuing other foreign gods that the people around the nation of Israel worshipped. And so Elijah is a prophet of God. And so he comes to the people and he says, enough of this. Enough of choosing sometimes to worship God, sometimes to worship Baal, sometimes to worship the God Asheroth. He says, once and for all, we are gonna, we're going to go after this and we're going to make a decision and we are going to decide where we want to land. And so what he sets up is this, this duel, if you will. And so there's 400 prophets of Baal. There's 400 prophets of this god Asheroth. And what he says is, let's set up two altars. All you guys go to this one altar. And I'm going to come over here by myself. And I'm going to set up an altar over here. And what we'll do is we'll each pray to our gods. And we will see who answers with fire from heaven. And whichever god shows up, that'll be who we worship. And if you know the story... You've got the hundreds of prophets on this side. And they are calling out to their gods and nothing is happening. And Elijah, he's got some spunk. So he's over there making fun of them. He's saying, why don't you call out a little louder? He says, maybe your God's in the bathroom. I mean, he's being super sarcastic and nothing happens. And then we see Elijah and he prays this prayer here in 1 Kings chapter 18. says this. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. You can just hear just the plea from God and the just humility. You can just sense it. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. It says this in 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah Elijah combines this incredible humility with big faith and specific prayers. And God shows up in an incredible way. And so Jesus, he asks Bartimaeus what he wants. It's kind of an absurd question. If you've read the story, you're like, Jesus, it's pretty clear what the guy wants. Right? I mean, he's blind. He wants you to give him back his sight. And yet Jesus comes to him and he says, what would you like? And I think it's because Jesus wants him to admit a need. The truth is, God is decisively drawn to the humble heart. He is. He is decisively drawn to the humble heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous uh, pastor theologian, wrote this. He said, I sometimes think that the spiritual life is just to realize two things. That I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. And we see this in Bartimaeus. What does he say here? He says, have mercy on me. That's humility right there. He doesn't say, Jesus, you owe me this. He doesn't say, Jesus, you gave me faulty eyes when I was born, and now you owe me good eyes. He says, have mercy on me. And he calls out with a humble heart. When audacious faith meets godly humility, it's like, watch out. And Bartimaeus will not be deterred. 
His moment is here. His day is here. And the bouncers who are with Jesus are telling him to be quiet and shush him. And he will not be quieted. He will not be silenced. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the man who heals blind eyes. And he will not be quieted. And so he keeps coming. And it says, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he called out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And in doing so, he shows us this third piece of the roadmap. And it's this. It's seek earnestly. Seek earnestly. You know, one of the mysteries of the Christian faith is that God responds to persistent faith. All throughout the scriptures, Jesus is applauding persistent faith. Faith that keeps coming and coming. Faith that simply will not be denied. And we don't have time to unpack that. That's one of the mysteries of the Christian faith. That's a whole talking of itself. But what we do know is that as you read the Bible, God is drawn to persistent faith. And that's clear. You can't get away from that. Maybe you remember the story of the persistent widow in Luke 18. It's kind of this bizarre story that as you read it, you're like, that's a little bit weird. But what happens is there's this widow and somebody has uh, wronged her. And so she goes to this judge, and she explains the situation, and she wants justice. And so the judge just rebuffs her and says, no, not today, not interested in doing it. And she comes back, and the judge is like, not interested, not going to happen. And so she comes back, and she's persistent, and she keeps coming to this guy. And eventually, he gets so sick of dealing with her that he grants her the justice that she wants. And Jesus tells this parable, and he says, I tell you what, if a worldly judge will respond to the persistent requests of a widow, how much more would your father who loves you long to move when you come to him with persistent and tenacious faith? Sometimes it's the persistent faith, as you continue knocking on heaven's door, that sets you up for the intervention that you're longing for. Andrew Murray, who was a well-known pastor in South Africa who lived about 100 years ago, wrote this about persistent faith. He said, persistence has various elements. The main ones are perseverance, determination, and intensity. It begins with a refusal to readily accept denial. This develops into a determination to persevere, to spare no time or trouble until the answer comes. This grows in intensity until the whole being is given to God in supplication. Boldness comes to lay hold of God's strength. At one time it is quiet, at another bold. At one point it waits in patience, but at another it claims at once what it desires. In whatever shape, persistence always means and knows that God hears prayer and that I must be heard. So what do we do when we feel like we've been praying about the same thing over and over? We keep praying. What do we do when we feel like we've been knocking on the gates of heaven and the door isn't opening? We keep knocking because we know that God is drawn to persistent, steadily faith. And so Bartimaeus, even in the face of being yelled at and shouted over and told to be quiet, keeps his courage and will not be denied. You see, because Bartimaeus knew who he was speaking to. This is the man, he had been dreaming of this day. The day that Jesus of Nazareth would walk by him on the road coming from Jericho. And so we see him cry out. He doesn't just say, Jesus. He says, Son of David. And what he's appealing to is Jesus as Messiah. 
He's throwing himself on the mercy of the Messiah, not claiming anything other than the healing that is promised to accompany the Messiah. And so he calls out, Son of David. And in calling him out in this name was an expression of faith. He's saying, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah. Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. And in calling that title out, he's expressing his faith to Jesus. And in doing so, he shows us what is the fourth and most important piece of this map. And it's this. It's that you are to ground your faith in God's character. The piece of the map that holds up all the other three is this fourth piece. The piece that says you've got to ground your faith in God's character. Have you ever seen the show Man vs. Wild? It was popular maybe five or ten years ago. Some people have seen it. I see some head nods. I remember this one that he was in the desert. And he gets dropped down, you know, from a helicopter into this desert. And I just thought to myself, how terrifying would it be to be stuck in the middle of a desert? You're you're utterly helpless. You have no direction. You're trying to read the sun to figure out which way is north and east and south and west. Imagine just the frustration of the blistering heat during the day and the freezing cold at night. You've got no direction. You're not even sure where to begin. Well, the truth is, if you live long enough, you'll know the desert of unanswered prayer. You'll know what it's like to feel like you've been dropped in a desert when you seek God and he doesn't doesn't answer in the way that you want him to. You've sought him earnestly. You've asked boldly. And it doesn't change that thing. It doesn't heal your dad. It doesn't fix the marriage. It doesn't provide that job right away. And so you feel like you're literally just in this desert and that God has left you fending for yourself. And the truth is, if your faith is is at its root, grounded in what you've done for God, you're toast. You're ultimately toast. If at the bottom layer of everything is is you believing, God, I have come to church. I have served you faithfully. God, I've tithed. Lord, I've even given up things for you. Then what happens when God doesn't show up in the way that you want him to is you find out, forget it. God, I gave you all that and you don't even show up when I need you most. I'm out. And you find yourself in this spiritual desert. And the truth is, if you hang there long enough, you'll find your spirit just drying up. If you hang there long enough, your spirit just dies for lack of true and living water. But if instead... You've looked at this this fourth piece of the map and you've said, rather than anchoring my asks for God in myself, I will choose to anchor those things in the goodness of God. Then the storms of life that will inevitably come, the waves that get high and the winds that crash and knock you around, though they're painful, though they may knock you about quite a bit, your ship doesn't sink. Because you've laid your anchor down in God's goodness. And you know that no matter how strong these winds are, no matter how high these waves are, you know that God is for you. You know that he is good. You know that he loves you because you've set your anchor there. And so you take this question of God's goodness and you look at it through the lens of the cross. And it screams back with this awe-inspiring finality that yes, 
Yes, I am for you. Yes, let that answer that question once and for all for you. Yes, I love you. Yes, you are my son. You are my daughter. You need not question if I am for you. I've shown you once and for all, I am for you and I am with you. And that informs this whole need for a rescue. And that gives foundation the other three pieces of your map because they fall apart without this last piece, this cornerstone that holds them all up. This whole idea falls apart if it's not grounded on confidence in who God is. You know, as I've been praying about this week and what God had for me to share, I just began to imagine and just picture, what if we became a church where every single one of us had answered that question for ourselves, is God good and is he for me? And we started to dream and risk together and say, God, I'm going to begin to pray for big things. God, I'm going to pray that you would move mightily. God, I'm going to begin to pray that literally in my lifetime, I would see you move in our region again. That it would go from being just platitudes that we say that sound nice to something that we literally will begin to contend for as a church. And we risk our hearts and we choose faith and we ask boldly and we ask specifically and we keep knocking on that door until we feel God release that. What could God do through us as a church? This is not because we want to see the name of City Church raised high. It's not because we want to be known across the country as a cool church. It's because we want to lift Jesus high. We believe that he is the greatest need of every person. And so we will lift that high. What if that became who we are? Man, what could God do through this church? I'd give my life for that thing, amen? To see God move in that way again. What if that became the driving force of who we are? And people said, not all city church, it's the new church that's been around a few years. They would say, man, that's the church that prays for big things. They have a faith that I want. And that became how people talked about us as a church. How cool would that be? I just believe God would just answer and respond to that. Oh, that he would do that in our midst again. The truth is, if you set that that anchor down. God will for you unlock the ability that you'll be an unstoppable force in the kingdom of God. Because no matter what comes, you will not be knocked off course. It's a few thousand years before Jesus, several actually, well, there's a man named Joshua. And God had told him and the people of Israel that he had a promised land for them. And that they had this, this area of land that God was going to give to them, but they had to go and get it. They had to go and conquer it. And Joshua uh, leads the people into the promised land. And the very first place that they come, if you remember the story, is the city of Jericho. It's this incredible parallel that Joshua leads the people of Israel into Jericho in order that they may ascertain the promised land. And here we see Jesus, and what's he doing? He's leading a people out of Jericho in order that he would go to Jerusalem and get for them an eternal promised land. And the truth is, the story does continue. Jesus does go to Jerusalem. And that which he thought was going to happen, which he knew was going to happen, did. He was mocked. He was killed. He was reviled. He was scorned. And eventually they hung him up on a cross where he died. 
the incredible news that comes with that, my friend, is that if you're here this morning and you've yet to believe that, I have the literal best news you will ever hear in your entire life. That Jesus who walked down that road, hung on a cross, and in doing so, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that God took your sin and my sin, and almost like a cup, God just pours out his wrath on Jesus. And God's hatred for sin is no longer pointed at you. It's no longer pointed at me. God takes it all together, your past and your present and your future sins and yours and mine. He takes them all together and he puts them on Jesus. And what has to be just unfathomable, excruciating pain for Christ. He hangs on the cross and he absorbs that wrath. And three days later, he rises from the dead. And Jesus comes and he says, I will, I will own your sin. And the righteousness that God has looked at me through, the perfect life that I lived in your place, through faith in me, you can have that righteousness. And while I was on the cross, I bore your sin. And so Jesus this morning is calling you saying, would you accept that? Would you be willing to Repent from trying to get to me on your own. Would you repent from living a life that doesn't honor me as ultimate most? Would you turn from those things? And would you believe? Would you choose to believe that I'm for you and that I'm good and that your sin was put on my shoulders so that my righteousness could be put on your shoulders? And that offer is to you this morning. Jesus is still offering that. So I want to give you a moment to respond. Let's stand together. If you're here this morning and you say, man, I'm ready. I don't know what God has been stirring in me, but something's stirring up. And I feel like this morning is my moment to take a step across the line of faith. Today is your day. You will not regret it. There is peace and joy and righteousness and the forgiveness of sin waiting across that step. And so if that's you this morning, I really want to pray with you. There'll be a number of us here just around uh, the auditorium, and we would love to come alongside you and pray. Just challenge you not, not to put it off any longer. If you've been coming here to the church for a while because you know that God has been knocking on the door of your heart, don't let another day go by. As a team leads us, I just encourage you would, you, let, would you let singing this song be your first expression of real faith? A faith that says, Jesus, I choose to believe. Jesus, I choose to accept what you've done for me. So let's pray. God, we do just say, in, in a spirit of thanksgiving, we stand in awe of what you've done. Jesus, that you continued past Jericho and you went to Jerusalem, we will never fully grasp and we will never fully understand. And yet this morning we stand under the weight of that and we just say two words. We say thank you. We say thank you. We sing, we pour our worship back to you in a hundred different ways, God. And right now we pour it back to you in song. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. 
lift your heart. Let's sing. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.